This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Richard Allen relates an experience where black people were going to a predominantly white Methodist church in Philly, and they were praying one day, and they didn't know that they were in the quote-unquote whites-only section. They were literally on their knees praying when a deacon came up and said, you got to get up. And so they were like, um, okay, but let us finish the prayer. And the deacon was like, no, you got to get up now, and if you don't do it, I'm going to get some more people to come over and help me physically remove you. Well, they went ahead and finished the prayer. But after that, uh, Alan writes in his memoirs that we got up as one and they were troubled with us no more Mm. and went down the street and founded what is now known as Mother Bethel AME. So the separation wasn't over a doctrinal difference. They weren't arguing about church polity or the divinity of Jesus or the doctrine of the Trinity. It was literally that they were being treated as second-class citizens in the household of God. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. America has a unique and ugly relationship with racism. And unfortunately, the church in America has often been complicit with this history. Even today, racism, implicit bias, and microaggressions can show up in our churches. But it doesn't have to be this way. On this episode, Jamar Tisby joins me on Where You're From to not only share about his own story of being treated differently because of the color of his skin, but also walks us through the American church's complicity with racism from before the foundation of our country to the present day. But this isn't just a history lesson. Jamar will end today's conversation with some hope, real hope, of how change is possible and how we can work toward a new day when all are truly treated as equal. Just some quick info on Jamar. He's finalizing his Ph.D. in history from the University of Mississippi and holds a master's from Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also the CEO and founder of The Witness Foundation, an organization that identifies, trains and funds the next generation of black Christian leaders. In his New York Times bestselling book, The Color of Compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity with racism will be the primary topic of today's conversation. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm calling in from the Delta, which is always hard to describe because it's the Mississippi Delta, but depending on who you ask, it's referring to the state or the river. I'm actually on the Arkansas side about... um, an hour south of Memphis, but it's what one author called the most southern place on earth, and I think mm. he's on to something. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in Illinois, and it's about 30 minutes from Kenosha, Wisconsin, solidly in the Midwest, and that's where I was born and raised, family still up in that area. So that's home still, even though I haven't lived there full time since college. Got it. So when did Jesus and Christianity become a part of your story? 
we didn't grow up in a in a particularly religious household. We didn't go to church weekly. There was no animosity there. It was it just wasn't like paramount on the radar. I came to what some people would call a personal relationship with Christ in high school through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group. And particularly, there was a, a guy, white kid, who was very charismatic in his own way, but didn't necessarily fit the mold of a cool kid, if you will. <laughs> uh, he did have a great jump shot, <laughs> but we had a health class together. First period was some horrible hour of the morning, like 7.30 or something. I don't know why they put high school kids through that. But we became friends, and he eventually invited me to his youth group. And so I started going to that youth group. And I mean, to be quite honest, I'm 15, 16 years old. I was going there to talk to girls and to hang out. But God (laughs) had other plans. And I remember distinctly, we were on a youth group retreat. And it must have been a winter retreat, because I remember it was cold, And we were in a cabin. It was me, the guy who first invited me to the youth group, and two of the youth leaders. And it just smelled like wet socks. It was a guy's cabin. (laughs) That that sounds about right. Teenage, high school, kids. That's it. Men, boys. Yeah, all that. (laughs) And this was a a cabin in Wisconsin where it gets very cold in the winter. Right, right, right. Probably snow on the ground. uh, Snow on the ground. This is real deal winter. Mm. And it was there. I had the most sort of traditional conversion experience you could have, prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus Christ into my life. And I didn't know all what that meant, but Jesus did. It was a real true conversion and uh, been walking with the Lord by his grace ever since. Amen, man. And that that's something we have in common. I came to faith at 17 as well. Okay, so you graduate, well, you have this experience with Jesus, you start walking with him. And then you go to college. Where did you go to undergrad? Oh, University of Notre Dame. Go Irish. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So when you think about your time there as a black man, what what was your experience being at Notre Dame, which is a, you know, predominantly white institution as, you know, African-American guy from near Kenosha? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was um, culture shock for me. My high school was... 50% Latino and about 20% black, 20% white. And then we had a a large immigrant population. So you go out in the hallway and you see the United Nations, right? Wow. Very diverse. Very diverse. And then I get to college. And this is true of a lot of PWIs, predominantly white institutions. And uh, the specific demographics where I went was 85% white. The biggest minority group was Latino because of the Catholic connection. And then black people were about 3% of the undergrad student body. And a majority of them were athletes. And I was not (laughs) a scholarship athlete at a D1 school. That is not my testimony. So (laughs) even then, there was a further sense of isolation because, you know, they were on teams together. And even if you were in a different sport, you shared that, you know, common bond of being an athlete. So I didn't even uh, socialize as much with the few black people on campus. So my first year and a half was culture shock, isolation, loneliness. And one of the most frustrating parts was experiencing sort of racism and implicit bias and microaggressions without having the language to name it. Mm. Okay. Could you paint a picture for people who may not know what a microaggression is or what that might look like? Yeah, Like bring us into that moment, you know, where you kind of go, oh, 
it's different. Y'all see me as different on this campus. Yeah, um, you can certainly Google sophisticated definitions of microaggressions, but to me, it's racism by a thousand cuts, you know, mm. like a paper cut is small but painful. Uh, yeah. So microaggressions are sort of everyday reminders that you are different, other, marginalized, less than, many times unintentional. Instances would include uh, pretty much every black person, specifically black males, Upon first meeting someone, they would ask you, what sport do you play? The assumption mm. being that if you are wow. black and on this campus, you must be an athlete. And uh, one of my friends was an engineer, black guy, um, who did not play sports. And whenever he got that question, he said, I play academics. <laughs> Never forgotten that. <laughs> Another example would be, um, I'm short and I shaved my head at that time. And so white guys, my classmates would just take all kinds of liberty to rub my head, Ugh. you know, Ugh. and it's almost like touching a black woman's hair. You just mm -hmm. don't do that. It's an invasion and a violation of like personal space and your own bodily autonomy. And it was also quite patronizing, right? Like right. rubbing someone's right. head as if to say, hey, boy. So that occurred. And then just sort of the social dynamics, right, of being a black person amidst all these white guys, like they would have these dorm parties and they'd be playing brown eyed girl and lady in red and, you know, Leonard Skinner. And I'm like, well, who, who are, what is all this music? What is this? And then the hip hop song would come on and they turned to me like, Jamar, rap the song, do the dance. Mm. I'm like what? Mm. So like I said, you know, I experienced all that and it felt uncomfortable yeah, that's relates so much to things I experienced on campus. You know, my best friend was white when I was in high school, you know, at one mm -hmm. point. And so going to a, a predominantly white institution, I thought was not going to be a problem because, you know, I had had that experience already. But then when I got to Penn and I'm like, oh, this is different because in my high school, there was no majority vibe. You know, we were it was predominantly black mm. and we all came from kind of a same kind of lower economic situation. Now it was a different world to use the, uh, yep. you know, the sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> and that world was one in which I was constantly reminded that people didn't think I belonged there. You know, mm -hmm. that was when the affirmative yep. action debates were happening and people yep. would assume I was there because of something other than my academic ability. And so that ended up having a process where I wanted to go deeper into understanding myself and my culture and where I fit yes. into the world. I wonder if you had a similar experience of kind of in that sense, experiencing this racialized environment and then asking some different questions about you and your, where you fit in. A major turning point for me was my sister's a good bit older. And so she was, uh, when I was in college, she was already living on her own in Chicago. And I remember visiting her one weekend and she had the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly mm. Daniel Tatum. And that was a transformative book because Tatum talks about racial identity development. So I read that and she talked about different stages from sort of, I'm not using the exact terms, but you progress from stages of being unaware of race. You'll notice physical differences, like a kindergartner will say, well, they're peach and I'm chocolate, but you don't attach any meaning to it, to an encounter phase where 
you realize that people view you differently because of skin color. And I, of course, had those experiences in high school. We were followed by cops, pulled over, you know, profiled, all that stuff. But it really hit me as a college student that this race thing is really salient for me as a black person. It means a lot of things and it's mostly negative in the eyes of the world. And then you go through this phase of immersion where you want to know what it means to be black. And so that's where I took, you know, all these African-American lit courses, started looking at the history, trying to be intentional about hanging out with black people and trying to say, well, this is part of my identity, but I refuse to accept that it's as negative as people say, or it's all the stereotypes that people say. And I want to know for myself what it is. And then you sort of emerge from that phase more able to confidently sort of be yourself in your own skin among white people and among people in the majority and, and of other cultures. So all of that was happening in college, and, but it wasn't really until I read that book that I had a language and a framework for what was going on. Gotcha. Okay, so what's your first move out of college? What do you do? First move out of college is Teach for America. Teach for America. Another thing we have in common. Uh, my first job out of college was I taught in inner city Philadelphia. Oh, wow. I taught first grade um, yes. as a balanced literacy intern teacher. So tell me about Teach for America. Why did you choose to do that? And where did that have you land? I got placed at a public charter school that was only in its second year. It started with fifth grade and they added a year every year. So I came in as the first sixth grade teacher in the school's history. And I was a disaster, <laughs> but the kids and the parents were patient with me and I learned a lot and uh, <laughs> stuck around. And I basically never left because I'm still in the same city where they wow. placed me over 15 years ago. Okay. You just said a key word, a big word, disaster. That's a, a very yeah. significant descriptor. Bruh. Why did you use that word? <laughs> well, nobody's a good first year teacher. I mean, sure, a good sure. first year teacher is surviving, right? <laughs> but I had no idea what I was doing. And it was a super tough environment because, you know, they send you to quote unquote high needs areas, which meant, you know, mm. um, the majority of our students are living at or below the poverty line. You're a social worker in addition to a teacher, right? Mm. So I remember mm -hmm. dress up days, they were a really big deal and we wanted every kid to be included. And so there were always four or five kids whose families couldn't afford dress up day clothes. And so we would walk down the street to a clothing store and buy socks and ties and dresses and shirts for the kids so that they could be included with their classmates in dress up day. And we started at fifth grade, but on average, our students were coming in at a third grade reading level. So they needed extra time. So our school day was 7.30 to 5 hmm. every day. Wow. And then you would do homework help. So it was like that would last till 7 or 8 at night sometimes. Then you'd go home, do lesson planning for the next day or get up early and do lesson planning. And so having all of those responsibilities on top of just what happens in the classroom was a steep learning curve for me and all of us. Wow. Now, the other thing that's a, quite different is you talked about – this experience at that retreat mm -hmm. where there was snow mm -hmm. on the ground in January. You go down to the Mississippi Delta, that's a different thing. Was there some culture shock in there for you? So, yeah, the geography is massively different. Uh, there's no heat like Delta heat. <laughs> I'm telling you. I've been, I've been a lot of different places that are hot. And, uh, you know, you walk out of here and it's like swimming. You will start sweating from your door to your car. 
and mm. the bugs are huge. A lot of people joke that the mosquito is the state bird, <laughs> and they ain't lying. <laughs> That's funny. And the climate has a lot to do with the history and the economics of the place. I can see the teacher coming out. Yeah, break it down. You know? So because of the heat in particular, it's perfect for growing one specific crop, that being cotton. Uh, my daily commute is literally through cotton fields. And I was talking earlier about the poverty my students experience, and that's a direct uh, link to the history of cotton growing and plantations here. And so enslaved people literally cut the trees, pulled up the tree stumps, drained the swamps, and cultivated the soil for plantations. And then it becomes the most lucrative place in the country for growing cotton. And so at one point, you have very few very wealthy people. And you had a large amount of very poor enslaved people. Of course, the Civil War happens and emancipation occurs, but then you still have plantation owners, you still have a white wealthy elite, and there's still cotton to be picked. And so for the people who can't go up north, what happens is they keep picking cotton. But now they're called so-called sharecroppers. So long story short, that traps people in poverty for generations and generations until the 1950s when you get automated farming starting to come on the scene. And now all of these sharecroppers are out of work because you only need one person where you needed 20 before. Mm. And if you couldn't afford to go north during the Great Migration, you were sort of stuck here. There was a USA Today article in 2019 that listed my county as the fourth poorest county in the entire country. Mm. And that's because these former sharecroppers who before were former slaves, enslaved people, couldn't get out, couldn't get jobs. There was a disinvestment in the economy and in education. And so you've got folks who have been poor since the 19th century. Wow. Living right here. And all of that walked into my classroom on two legs. Okay. There's a whole lot that you just dropped, which is mind-blowing in different ways. I'll go where, where you just ended. All of that came into your classroom. How did your experience with public education and as a teacher shape your thoughts on this idea of education is the solution and this is the way forward? And now you're seeing these complexities show up to your classroom that are generations old. I mean, let me touch on a pain point. If you don't think systemic and institutional inequality exists, come down to the Delta. Hmm. There's no better place to demonstrate this because I can show you my sixth grade students. They're just as smart as your kids. Their eyes are just as bright. Their imaginations are just as broad. But the reality is there's generational poverty, which is not of their own doing. It's not of their parents or their grandparents' own doing. They're trapped in a system that was set up this way. And because of that, very few of them can go to college very few of them get a quote-unquote professional or white-collar job. Many of them grow up without exposure to other ways of living and doing life and sort of replicate what they see. You go downtown in our town, and it looks like in some areas like a bomb dropped. Mm. Like it might have been a war zone at one point and nobody ever repaired it. There's no jobs here. There's no good educational prospects here. So anyway, all of that meant... Issues of justice, and particularly racial justice, were real to me. It's not theoretical. My mm. kids' parents are 
literally making choices between paying the electric bill or fixing their car. If you pay the electric bill, great, you have lights. But if you have a broke down car, guess what? You can't get groceries. Mm. So, you know, I've long said that uh, racial justice requires priestly proximity. Mm. Priestly proximity. Priestly proximity, meaning you're not going to have empathy and solidarity for people unless you're close to people who are suffering. Yeah. Right. You're not going to have that kind of pastoral concern unless you are near to people who, you know, in Matthew 25, what Jesus calls the least of these. Mm. And that's what living in the Delta did for me. When we come back, Jamar Tisby will share about the dehumanizing attacks he received on social media and the Internet as he began to write about issues of race and justice on primarily Christian platforms. That's coming up on Where You're From. If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of where you're from. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. This is Mary Jo Clark, and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. Before we jump back into our conversation with author and historian Jamar Tisby, I wanted to share a teaser from our next episode with mental health expert Dr. Christina Edmondson. This is Where You From. You know, our brain is a part of the body, right. and we need to pursue good brain health. I mean, maybe that's maybe mm. that'd be a better word mm. in, in thinking about it, right? Mm. A, a better way to frame that is that we need to keep our brains healthy. Why? Because they're a gift from God. We have to be good stewards of our brains. It's mm. like we're good stewards of our whole body. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be mindful about how do we take good care of what God has given us. It is a gift. And now back to our conversation with Jamar Tisby. So I would publish on evangelical blog sites, some very well-known, very high-trafficked sites. And, you know, it would be a topic on race, which as I look back at it now, I was saying, you know, very basic, gentle, light things. But getting a lot of pushback, name-calling, you know, people calling into question my faith, my theology, got to the point where... I couldn't even log on to social media without my eye twitching from the stress of knowing that there was just going to be this deluge of people who called themselves Christians. And they did things like, 
They had memes that showed, you know, caricatures of black people talking, you know, in a way that would indicate they weren't educated or something. And they would say, that's me, you know, Mm. gorillas and monkeys and bananas and N-words and all of this stuff. Mm. And there were some things on there I didn't even know, like, oh, that's a racial epithet. Huh. I didn't even know that one. That was that. That was in a particularly intense period. But that whole trend was consistent from, I would say, 2014 on. Yeah. It seems like you had this posture or position of a bridge builder, almost like a cultural translator in some ways. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, the backlash that you experienced caused you to kind of readjust. And I mean, that must have been very difficult. I imagine that would be mm-hmm. painful if it was me to Super kind of be painful. like, I want to try to help you. But then I get attacked in the midst of trying to help. How did you even get over that and continue to move in, in this space? Uh, it's an ongoing process. <laughs> I wouldn't even say mm-hmm. I'm over it, but I'm, you know, living with it. I can remember because this wasn't just online stuff. This was at my church. Wow. Okay. So this leads us to the book, The Color of Compromise, which is a breathtaking book, but also sobering. And I've heard that it almost didn't get written. You know, this is a book that's been on the New York Times bestsellers for four weeks in a row. Very important book. Why did it almost not get written and what caused you to decide to write it? So I enrolled in the Ph.D. program in history at the University of Mississippi in 2016. And I have the privilege and opportunity of reading literally dozens of books on U.S. history, all fields from labor to gender to civil rights. And whenever race was mentioned and Christianity was mentioned, it was usually Christians on the wrong side of history. That, in addition to actually reading the history and learning the names and dates and places, and really the brutality and the extent of racism to a degree I had never known before, instilled within me a sense of righteous anger of, you know, I never knew it was this bad kind of a reaction. Mm. And it instilled in me a sense of urgency Like, okay, so if this has been our history, then we really need to get on the hot foot about racial justice right now, because we have Mm. severely underestimated its power, its pervasiveness, its brutality in our current approaches to like racial reconciliation in the church. And so basically we needed to tell the history to establish the problem before we can talk about solutions. And so that's how The Color of Compromise came about. Got it. And that's probably as good a place as any to get into The Color of Compromise. So one of the things that struck me just as a 30,000 foot level was it was for me emotionally discouraging or sad to see the consistent drum beat of, as you would say, Christian complicity with racism in the church throughout American history. How much of this did you discover while pursuing the book and writing it? And how much of it did you already know? And that was what you had planned on framing it in the first place. I had stumbled across a lot of it in my reading for grad school. Um, so by the time I started writing the book, I had I had read literally over 100 books on U.S. history. Mm-hmm. But most of this was new to me as of grad school. So, you know, learning this in my 30s, right? Right. And when you read, you know, a civil rights activist, he wasn't just shot. He was shot through the jaw and he died slowly because they didn't call for medical attention. And his son was in the seat next to him. 
right? When you read that a lynching took place, it didn't just take place. It took place on the, the grounds of a black church to inflict maximum terror and to say that there's no place sacred and there's no place safe from white terror. When you read Fannie Lou Hamer had an unauthorized hysterectomy, mm. literally sterilizing her, which was a relatively common practice in those days for black women to be involuntarily sterilized, right? That kind of stuff. And writing the book, many of the stories that made it in there are the ones that especially stood out to me right. many times, unfortunately, for their brutality or for their blatant racism. I want to give a treatment, just a little snippet of each era that you cover. It starts, with, it says, with the roots of racism in the pre-American church in the 1600s. Like, what's an example mm -hmm. of something you covered in that? The year 1619 is a good sort of historical landmark. It's not the very first time Africans are brought to North America, but it's the first time they were brought to colonial Virginia, which is British North America. And 20 and odd Negroes are sold into slavery. And there's some debate about the exact contours of what this unfree bondage, unfree labor looked like. Was it indentured servitude? Was it slavery? It was closer to slavery than indentured servitude. But it was this period in the 1600s where that wasn't written in stone. And race-based chattel slavery hadn't yet become the order of the day. But you get religious folks very quickly creating a racial hierarchy. So I talk about in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which is a group of white Anglican men, so Christians, pass a law about baptism, saying that baptism would not emancipate a Native American, a person of African descent, or mixed race descent. And so right there... Already you're getting laws being passed and traditions being codified that says, you know, there's this separation between your spiritual status and your physical status. And there's a hierarchy because it had been tradition in Europe that if you were Christian, you couldn't be enslaved. But they were changing that tradition in North America as they encountered Native Americans and especially Africans. Um, so that's, you know, 1600s is slowly becoming more codified. And the revolutionary era is so interesting because it's all of these ideas of freedom and liberty and equality. And it really meant for white men, mm. to some extent, white women, but definitely not Native Americans or black people. It, that was another conversation that's happening mm -hmm. and that really takes shape in the antebellum American church where you kind of see this theological debate happening. Tell us a little bit about that moment that mm -hmm. you see. So Mark Knoll does a great job of this in his book. I'd recommend it's called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And what he shows in that book is that the Civil War is not just a battle about bondage. It's a battle over the Bible, too. Southern pro-slavery theologians were saying, well, we are the people who take the Bible seriously because we are taking God at God's word. And they would say that and say, you know, you see the word slavery all over the Bible. You don't see any explicit place where slavery is condemned. You see a lot of Christian heroes as slave owners. And the only thing the Bible says in regard to slavery is to regulate it. And so their argument was, we're more serious about the Bible because we don't want to abolish slavery because the Bible didn't abolish slavery. And what we're doing is trying to run slavery in a Christian way. We're trying to be, you know, benevolent slave owners. That was their argument. 
Then they would point the finger to abolitionists who were mainly in the north, but all over the place. And they would say, you guys are being liberal with the Bible. You're being wishy-washy with God's word because you're saying we should abolish slavery. But show me chapter and verse where the Bible supports that. And meanwhile, abolitionists who were Christian are like, but, but what about love thy neighbor? What about like man stealing? What about, you know, the whole Sermon on the Mount thing and treat others how you want to be treated, right? They're saying the sort of thrust, intent, and impact of the Bible, especially Jesus' teachings, is toward emancipation. So you had this back and forth between pro-slavery theologians and pro-abolitionist uh, theologians. Man, and there's a cadence in the book where you continually reference and remind the reader that it didn't have to be this way. This was not inevitable. Sometimes we look at history as, well, they were people of their time. They didn't know any better. But you beg to differ and show how there were these moments, these unique opportunities where things could have been done different if there was the courage of convictions and not compromise. And one of them you mentioned has to do with the post-Civil War church and especially this period called Reconstruction. Could you unpack that moment and see how you saw entrenched racism impact or shape the church's reaction to this unique opportunity of the bloodiest war in American history being resolved, the slavery issue essentially being forcibly answered and resolved. Mm -hmm. So, boom, here's an opportunity. What happened? Yeah, there are all these turning points in U.S. history when we could have gone the route of equality and justice. And other than the nation's founding and the writing of the Constitution, the immediate period after the Civil War, there was no greater opportunity to America to fulfill its potential of democracy and equality. And it started to happen to a certain extent. So you have this period from 1865 to about 1877 called Reconstruction. And it was specifically about the reconstruction of the South. This is where the Civil War had been waged. And so towns were, you know, in shambles and crops had been burned and all things like that. So it was reconstructing sort of the infrastructure of the South, but it was also reconstructing democracy, right? And it was for the first time trying to include black people as free people in American democracy. And so you get this flowering of black political participation to the point where I believe it was in South Carolina, a majority of the House was black, black elected officials. And you had dozens and dozens, you had first time senators, first time lieutenant governors. Pinchback was, I think, the first governor very briefly who was black in Louisiana. And you have this sort of expansion of black economic opportunity, all of this stuff. That gets immediate pushback by white supremacists. So just because the Civil War ended doesn't mean racism ended, right? It just means right. they lost the military battle. And so immediately after the Civil War, you have people pushing back with the myth of the lost cause, which is sort of this romanticized idea of the antebellum South and slavery and orderly society before the Civil War. You also have the violent reclamation of white power. And then all heck breaks loose. It is a period that I find dismally and depressingly called redemption, which white supremacists meant it as reclaiming the South for white people. But that's a Bible word. Wow. And it's a good news word in the Bible. Mm. But in the hands of white supremacists, it becomes the start of the Jim Crow era. Mm. And what characterizes the Jim Crow era most specifically is racial segregation and the violent enforcing of white superiority through lynching. Wow. That's right. So you talk about the era of Jim Crow in the book. What was some signs of church complicity or compromise with racism in that era? 
In the Jim Crow era, you see very clearly this fusion of whiteness, nationalism, and Christianity. So most people don't realize that the KKK came in waves, the Ku Klux Klan. And so the first wave was right after the Civil War. The most recent big wave was during the Civil Rights Movement in the 50s and 60s. But in many ways, the most widespread and violent wave came in the middle of the Jim Crow era. So in 1915, you get the resurrection of the KKK through this ceremony. A white former Methodist circuit rider, so he's a former preacher, leads a group of white men to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, on which is emblazoned these Confederate heroes, right, who, who were all pro-slavery and owned slaves. And on top of that, they do a ceremony, and they have a couple of elements. Number one, they burn a cross, which is going to become a symbol of racial terrorism in the 20th century. Number two, they build an altar, and on that altar, they put a Bible and an American flag. And what that is saying in terms of the symbolism and the identity is that this is a white man's country, and it is a white Protestant Christian man's country. We have God and the Bible on our side. And this is what sociologists call Christian nationalism, which is not so much a theological movement as it is a socio-political and cultural movement that basically says a well-ordered society is one in which white Protestant Christians are in charge. And all kinds of political and cultural baggage comes along with that. But you're seeing the fusion of white supremacy and Christianity in this new era of Jim Crow. And this is why you get Christians like G.T. Gillespie in 1954, after the Brown v. Board decision, giving an address, basically the Christian case for segregation. And he gives this talk in front of a group of white Presbyterian ministers and draws from the Old Testament, makes all these terrible exegetical leaps that, you know, you'd get an F for on a seminary paper or a college paper. But they love it so much, his audience love it so much that they get a copy of the speech and reprint it thousands of times in the form of a pamphlet and spread it across Christian churches. So you get Christian churches, denominations, and individuals as some of the staunchest advocates of racial segregation and who are also pushing back against the black civil rights movement toward the latter end of the Jim Crow era. Okay, so when we get to the civil rights era, and this is a time period that many of us are more familiar with, what do you see as the church's response and reaction to these calls for justice and righteousness? So I write that chapter as basically a story between MLK and Billy Graham, both Christians, both ministers, but a very different approach to racial justice. And Billy Graham does some interesting things. In 1953, he pulls down the ropes segregating black and white people at his crusades and says, I'm not going to preach to a segregated audience. If that's going to be the case, find yourself another preacher. That's before Brown v. Board, right? So that's significant in terms of timing. In 1957, he invites Dr. King to pray at one of his rallies and sort of opens up his platform to him. But then by 1963, and the March on Washington and letter from a Birmingham jail, Graham is saying to King that he and other civil rights activists need to, quote, pump the brakes a little bit, put on the brakes. And he's saying, you know, all these marches and protests, you getting arrested and put in jail and all this, quote unquote, lawlessness, that's too much. You need to work through the system. You need to rely on the local people in town and let the process work itself out. We hear you. We understand you. We agree with you. You should have your full civil rights, but do it this way. Well, King is basically like, um, the system was 
set up to discriminate against us. We cannot trust the system and work through it like you can. Hence the need for all these protests. And so he writes a letter from a Birmingham jail. And by the way, he's arrested on Good Friday, Mm. just before Easter. And in it, he talks about the white moderate. It's like, we don't disagree with your goals, but we do disagree with the means and the timing, right? And so King talks about the white moderate paternalistically setting the timetable for another person's freedom. And that leads us to today, which I'm glad we got just a few minutes to talk about. (laughs) Because when I read the civil rights era... It was, and you know, striking to see some of the same rhetoric and concepts used today. Mm. As you went into that history, as you kind of, you know, did a deep dive into the counter arguments against integration, against racial justice, even against going to the streets and law and order. What were some of the things that you see happening that sound very similar to that? So unfortunately, it's really easy to play on people's fears, especially when it comes to quote unquote safety, right? So any protest that can somehow be linked to violence or property damage, you're going to get people who are against that, right? Never mind that most protesters are nonviolent. And one of the things I say in the book is racism never goes away, it just adapts. And so one of the adaptations in the wake of the civil rights movement is this coded language that means race, right? What began as an explicit tactic has become so commonplace that people don't even recognize it anymore. Mm. As that stuff continues on, we have to recognize, we got to be savvy, we got to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. One of the things you mentioned in the book is that in the civil rights era, that movement was led out of the church and the current movement, which you describe as another wave of a civil rights movement, is happening outside of the church with some platforms and positions that cause a lot of evangelical Christians great pause and concern about supporting. I know that that's something that I've heard in my support of racial justice. How do you respond to some of those critiques and questions and concerns that people have about even saying Black Lives Matter or in any way being a associated with an organization that there's multiple types of concerns about? The first thing I'd say is do some independent research. If we're only relying on politicians and pundits and talking heads for our information, we're really limiting ourselves and our knowledge. The other thing I'll say is there's always objections to the black freedom struggle in whatever form it takes. There were people who fought on the side of the Confederacy, pro-slavery and against abolition. There were people who looked at the civil rights movement and folks like MLK, who is literally an ordained minister and has a PhD in theology and labeled him communist, Marxist, anti-Christian, labeled the entire civil rights movement as violent and destructive. And I would say, particularly to the violence piece, understand that a lot of this is happening in response to the violence inflicted upon black people, particularly through police brutality. So if we're going to talk about violence, let's start there with the root of why these protests are happening and then understand that any movement, any struggle for justice is going to be messy. There's going to be an element of unpredictability to it. But for decades, the church has had the opportunity to lead on issues of racial justice and to start a movement and lead a movement on racial justice. But in many ways, we didn't do it. Mm, So good. It reminds me that line in Hamilton when there's a cabinet battle And Jefferson and Hamilton are debating about if they should get involved with the French uh, Revolution. And Jefferson says, revolution is messy, but now is the time to stand. Yeah. (laughs) Preaching, Doc. (laughs) And on that, one of the things that struck me at the end of the book, you 
invoke as a charge Joshua chapter one mm. and the command, the exhortation that God gives Joshua as the successor to Moses, be strong mm-hmm. and courageous, do not be yeah. afraid. And that courage to overcome fear kind of gives a sense of a glimpse of hope. And then these steps that you even give afterwards. And, you know, I just encourage people to check out the book of the various ways people can be about the work of not redoing the mistakes of the past, but charting a new course, which also seems to suggest that you have a sense of hope. What gives Mm. you that hope? Like to even write this work is an effort in some sense of a glimmer to say that we're not destined to repeat the errors of the past. What gives you hope in this current day that that's even possible? Well, hope is a Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love. And so, you know, you can't be Christian and not be a person of hope because we believe that our Savior died but was raised back to life and gives us the opportunity of redemption and resurrection on a daily basis. So it's part of what being a Christian means. But then from a historical lens, Fannie Lou Hamer was, I mentioned earlier in the show, she was born with everything against her earthly speaking. So she was born into a sharecropping family in Sunflower County, Mississippi. So she was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. And it wasn't until she was in her 40s that she became a public activist for civil rights under much more daunting circumstances than I. And she endured this brutal beating that left her with lifelong injuries at the hands of police officers just because she wanted to register to vote, right? And so as I look at the ancestors like Fannie Lou Hamer, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, Murley Evers, Coretta Scott King, Ida B. Wells, you know, the list goes on and on and on, Mary McLeod Bethune, whoever you want to name, and I say, they brought us this far. I'm not going to give up the struggle. And every generation has a responsibility for the struggle of its time. And the Lord has brought the church for such a time as this in terms of racial justice. It is no coincidence that the people listening here uh, are alive right now in all of this period of racial unrest and turmoil. It's no coincidence that God has called you to follow his son, Jesus Christ, at this moment in time. And so what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? We can either shrink back and demonstrate complicity in the face of racism, or we can demonstrate courageous Christianity and confront it rather than compromise with racism. And that's what I try to call people to do at the end of the book. Jamar is right. Christians have hope that isn't just a good feeling or an attempt to make ourselves feel better. We have a real hope anchored in the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. And that hope challenges us to become like Jesus, to be people who reflect him by laying down our comfort, security, and even our lives on behalf of others. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And if you'd like more information about Jamar Tisby, check out the show notes, which are located in the podcast description. The show notes not only contain the talking points of today's show, but they also include a link to Jamar's book, The Color of Compromise, as well as a link to a free download titled Celebrate Hope. To get this free digital download, visit whereyou'refrom.net. That's where, Y-A, from, dot net. I'm Russell Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark and Daniel Ryan Day and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward. I also want to give a quick shout out to Dave and Joyce for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. 
Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.